needs to live out the implications of the empty tomb in our community and in our lives. And so join me in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 to 10 for us. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, what a stunning text. To many of us, it's fairly familiar. And Father, you know us and you know how what is familiar for us can often lose potency can often lose its uniqueness and so i pray that that would be recaptured for us this morning i pray that your spirit would recapture our minds and our hearts our imaginations with this gorgeous text the beautiful realities spoken to us here. Would you awaken us to those? Not just as knowledge, as facts to memorize, but as the energizing force in our lives. That by grace we have been saved through faith. That will be accomplished not by my words, but by your power. And so would you do it? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I saw this week that the BBC and Netflix are producing a new animated series uh, based on Watership Down. You know that great uh, tale by Richard Adams about rabbits who go on a journey to find a new home. And that reminded me of our text for this week. Because in Adam's story, as his rabbits go on this harrowing journey, they find themselves in need of wisdom and courage. And part of the way they find what they need, part of the way they find the wisdom and the courage that they need is they tell stories. All along that overarching story, they are telling stories to one another that sustain them for that journey. That reminded me of our text. Because Paul here is writing to communities who are on a harrowing journey. 
a journey to a new home, a journey to freedom, a journey to new life, to a new creation. And they are communities that are in need of wisdom and courage. And in chapter 1 of this book, Paul celebrates God and then he prays to God for these communities. And now in chapter 2, he gathers them around the campfire. And he says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. And this morning, I want us to listen in. I want us to listen in because we are one of those communities who are on this journey. And we are in need of wisdom and courage. Paul tells this not only to us, but he tells this story about us. And it will help to sustain us. In this calling that Jesus has given to us. And so I want us to listen in this morning. And my high school English teacher will help us out. Because she taught me that great classical narratives have conflict and resolution. So I want to pay attention to both of those elements in this passage. First of all, conflict. Stories without problems, without tension, are boring. They are uninteresting. As a part of my kids' necessary cultural education, we force them to watch recently that great cinematic classic, The Karate Kid. (laughs) That movie isn't exciting if Daniel wins every fight or if he wins every fight easily. There's tension. There are problems. And Paul here in Ephesians does not tell a boring story. He begins with a distressing problem, the most distressing problem, death. And as if death weren't scary enough, he talks about the possibility of living in a way that can be described as death. Paul doesn't just talk about the dead, he talks about the walking dead. You see, the conflict here in this story, it's a zombie problem. And this problem is created by sin. Quick definition of sin. Sin is the rejection of and the replacement of God and his design for us. And Paul says this death-making force, this death-deadly sin can be experienced by the world in three different ways. This deadly sin is experienced culturally. Following the ways of the world, he speaks of in verse 2. Elements of human society that are in opposition to God. This sin can be experienced culturally and it can be experienced spiritually. Following the prince of the air. Under the powerful influence of spiritual beings in opposition to God. Sin can be experienced culturally and spiritually And then also personally, through desires and passions, the desires and passions that he speaks of in verse 3. That is not to say that desire and passion are bad. It is to say that they can be distorted. They can be misdirected and they can lead us away from God rather than towards him. And all of this is wrapped up in a relational problem with God. The children 
or the, the walking dead are the children of wrath. They are under God's judgment. There's the problem. There's the tension. The walking dead created by sin. And here's the bad news. The bad news is those first two words of verse 1. And you. This is about you. This is about me. This describes us apart from God's intervention. This describes you. It describes me. It describes the impact of sin on us and our relationships and our culture and our world. And you. This conflict is about us apart from Christ. You see, you aren't Daniel LaRusso taking a few hits but triumphing in the end. You're murder victim number three in a CSI episode. We aren't the beleaguered but heroic community surviving the apocalypse. Sin makes us the zombies. Now that's offensive. <laughs> I don't know if you came to church this morning wanting to be called a zombie. <laughs> that is offensive, and I, I, I want to acknowledge that, and I hope you don't hear me saying that with some kind of contemptuous glee. Because, see, the goal of this description here at the beginning of the passage, the goal isn't self-contempt. It isn't hatred of our humanity. That's not the goal. If that's what you are doing with it, you're missing the point. The goal here is proper diagnosis. I think the medical professionals in the room would agree that the right diagnosis is pretty important for a good treatment. The beginning of this text is about proper diagnosis. You wouldn't prescribe aspirin to a corpse. This speaks truly of who we are apart from God's intervention. This is true and deep self-knowledge. And it is hard to hear. But it's freedom. Because it's true. It is freedom. Because it, does, it diagnoses our true need. You see, your true need isn't self-improvement. Your true need isn't pain management. Your true need is resurrection. It is resurrection. That is what you most need as a human being. That is what every baby born most needs. Resurrection. And so the opening of this passage doesn't function to produce self-contempt or hatred. It simply helps us to truly know our need. But there is actually a higher goal here. There's a higher goal. The higher goal is seen in that the problem Paul describes is described in the past tense. This conflict... The walking dead are described in the past 
tense. Back to verse 1. And you are? No. And you were. This most distressing and frightening conflict, it's for the purpose of the story it sets up, secondly, an even more glorious resolution. Paul doesn't narrate a tragedy here. He is not narrating a tragedy. He tells a story of great reversals, dramatic reversals, stunning contrasts. Those who were dead, verse 5, they are raised. Those who were under spiritual oppression, verse 6, now they are seated above, over those spiritual powers. Those who were children of wrath, verse 7, now receive a wealth of kindness. Those who were the walking dead, Verse 10, are now walking new creations made for good works. This story isn't a tragedy, it is a comedy in the Shakespearean sense. Dramatic reversal. But how does that reversal happen? And perhaps more importantly, how does that reversal happen to us? Well, as devastating as the first two words in verse 1 can be, how much more powerful the first two words in verse 4. But God. But God. See, the darkness of and you apart from God's intervention, that darkness is pierced by the light of but God has intervened. God has intervened. He is the one who steps in and authors this great dramatic story of reversal. And out of His abundant love and mercy, He writes you into the narrative. He makes you a part of this movement from death to life. And He does that by a Attaching you to Jesus. He writes you into this beautiful, stunning story of contrast, of reversals. He does that by writing you into this story, by attaching you to Jesus. Did you see it? You are made alive with Christ. You are raised in Him. You are seated with Him. You are recreated by Him. What happened to Jesus as He rose and ascended into heaven over all earthly powers, what happened to Him is happening to those who believe in Him. That is the stunning truth of this passage. What happened to Jesus that we read about in the Gospels is happening to us. Those of us who believe in Him. Raised, seated, ruling, recreated. And in case you missed it, Paul repeats in verse 8, What he said in verse 5, it's all by grace. 
It is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that God has written you into this narrative. It is by grace that He has made you a part of this movement. It's all gift. It's all gift. It's His accomplishment, not yours. He is the designer. You are the design. He is the painter. And in Christ, you are that brilliant stroke of yellow in the bottom right-hand corner of the canvas. He is the poet. In Jesus, you are the rhyme. James Parker is an editor for the Atlantic magazine. And he wrote recently a celebration of the Australian poet Les Murray. And he argues that Les Murray is one of the great poets of our time. And he says he's a great poet because like all great artists, he is able to capture, to describe, and to make sense of the strangeness of our world and our experience of that world. And Parker ends that article by saying you can step out into any day with all of its variety, with all of its strangeness, and you can say, yep, Les Murray would know what to do with this. We get to say something better because of this passage. We get to step out into our weeks with all of its variety, all of its joys, all of its sorrow, all of its calm, and all of its chaos, and we can say, yep, the poet of grace knows what to do with it. Poet of grace knows what to do with this. That is what will give you wisdom and courage for tomorrow. That is what will give you wisdom and courage for your relationships, for your work. It is that Jesus has walked the journey before you and now by His Spirit He walks with you. And has created this relationship with the divine artist so that he is the poet and you are the rhyme. He is the artist and you are his expression of beauty. In that relationship, it certainly teaches us humility. It is hard to admit we're not the author, right? We would rather have the pen in our hands. We would rather have the brush in our hands to make of life what we want to make of it. And so this teaches us humility, and it's the humility of true authenticity. We talk a lot about authenticity in our culture, but I think we're confused about it. See, to be authentic is to be authored. It is to be written and to be true to that Authorship. So the question of the gospel, the question of this text to you is, will you let your life be authored by the one who raises the dead? So yes, this teaches us humility. But do you see how that humility isn't degrading? It isn't degrading to our humanity. It is in fact dignifying. I alluded to this earlier, but we sometimes do weird things with this text. There's so much beauty to it, and we, we walk away thinking that we cannot take a compliment. 
Right? Because it's, it's boasting in God. If somebody compliments me, I have to say, well, it's all Jesus' work. I can't receive and enjoy that. We walk away somehow. We walk away from this degrading ourselves. We somehow walk away from this thinking that we have to talk about how terrible we are all the time. Listen, confession of sin, honest confession of sin, acknowledgement of our deep need, that's good. We do it every week as a part of our worship. But why do we do it? We do it because of what comes next. We do it in order to hear the word of the gospel spoken over, over our lives, which is this. God wanted you. God in His love and His mercy wanted you to be a part of His symphony, to be a part of His poem, to be a part of His painting. So He sent Jesus to die and to rise and to ascend so that He could take us with Him. That is God's grace to you. That is what it means to say that it is all gift. It is not to degrade yourself. It is to receive the full dignity of what God intends for us, what God desires for us as His people. Some people complain about how many superhero and fantasy movies get made these days. They get tired of it, those grumpy critics, and they think we need more realistic stories. Why are we having all these superhero stories? I heard a great response to that. I heard a great reason for why we continue to be attracted to those stories. A.R. Roberts is an author, and he says, we love those stories Because we all long to be kings in disguise. We all long to be kings in disguise. That's what we are in God's story. That's what we are in God's story. He is recreating all that is. And if we are in Jesus, we share Jesus' royalty. To say that we are raised with Him and seated with Him is not to say that our lives are without struggle or without sin or without sorrow. But it is to say that in a very real way, we share His power over all that is opposed to God. And over all that is opposed to the life that God intends for us. If you are in Jesus, you are a king, you are a queen in disguise. You share his royalty. You live with a status and an ability to live out the good works of God's beautiful kingdom. Which story are you going to live by? Which story will shape your life this week? Will it be the one that begins with you as a zombie, but ends with you raised and seated?
with Jesus. Let's pray.